Amen. You may be seated. And I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 as we continue to work our way through the text. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 19 this morning. In all fairness to the scriptures, the unit uh, from a linguistic perspective really goes verses 15 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 23. Uh, that last paragraph there, verses 20 to 23, serves as a foundational point for what he's going to say in verses 15 to 19. Ordinarily, I try to preach the whole thing as one, in one fell swoop, but uh, I thought we would just pause for a moment and, uh, and just look at verses 15 to 19 this morning. But you need to understand the paragraph fits together as a whole. And you also need to understand that um, there's an imperative here. There's a command for what we're to do. But that imperative always rests on an indicative. Some of you are like, whoa, like we're not even into the sermon yet, and you're, you're already using these big grammar words that I don't really understand. There's a command for us to do something. But that command always rests on an assurance of something that God has already done. Okay, that's really what I'm getting at. We're going to look at that assurance next week. We've been looking at it all the way through. But today, we're just going to focus in on that command. That's what I want to look at this morning. And so uh, I'll just remind you of it in verses. I'll, I'll just read verse 19, and then we'll pray and we'll ask the Lord to help us, and we'll get to work. And so verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now... Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Let's ask God to help us. Bow with me. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much. We say thank you always when we begin our prayer to you. It is always right for us to begin with an expression of gratitude because all that we have, we have it because of you. And the greatest gift that we have is this privileged status to be called sons and daughters of the Most High, to be children in your family. And you did all of this from start to finish, first in sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins, and then calling us out of our blindness and our hardness of heart, calling us to faith, faith in Christ. And as, you, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, Lord, you, you raised us from the dead. By grace, we have been saved. And we just say thank you for that. Lord, help us to keep all of that in the forefront of our mind as we now hear you calling us to commit ourselves as slaves to righteousness. Lord, I do not ask that you soften the sting of these words. Lord, I do not ask that you somehow help me to sugarcoat or to sweeten exactly how sharp this command is. Rather, Lord, I pray that you'd soften hearts. I pray, Lord, that you'd humble all of us to hear you once again calling your people on the foundation of your grace to live as you died to make us live. We ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I was at a 
friend's house at a party, Christmas party. It was around Christmas time, and I got to speaking to an individual who was there whom I didn't know, and um, we were meeting lots of different people at this event. And of course, when two guys meet, invariably, like the first thing you ask is, so what do you do for a living, right? And uh, the interesting thing is that I usually ask, oh, so what do you do for a living? And then we kind of talk about that for a moment, and they always follow up with, what do you do for a living? In which I say, oh, I'm a pastor. And then the conversation inherently gets very, very spiritual, always, without fail. And so uh, I, I sympathize with many of you. You go and you meet people and you sometimes struggle to find opportunities to evangelize and to share the gospel. You don't have that natural sort of in that I have whenever I just start talking about the fact that I'm a pastor. But I met this fellow uh, at this party and uh, I began to share with him that I was a pastor here at First Baptist Church. And uh, he began to say that he was a Christian as well, to which I then responded, oh, well, which church do you go to? In which he then responded, I'm not into religion, I'm into a relationship, which I would agree. I also think that we are saved based on a relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. But he didn't actually answer my question, so I said, I agree, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ too, and about 100 other members at First Baptist Church. Which church do you go to? He said to me, I learn way more about God walking in the fields, going for hikes in Mother Nature than I ever learned going to church. And then he followed it up. I'm into relationship, not religion. Is that, is that an accurate way of describing the Christian life? As we look at Romans chapter 6 this morning, I want you to understand there is no competition between religion and relationship as far as Paul is concerned. If we understand what religion is, and if we understand what relationship is. This morning, as we unpack Romans chapter 6, Paul is going to suggest to you and me that we have an obligation to bind ourselves as slaves to Christ. What does that mean, and how do we do it? Look with me. Paul begins in Romans chapter 6. This all falls under the heading of verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. He then asks that rhetorical question that he really started the chapter asking. He begins in verse 15. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? That's very similar to how he began the chapter. If you look at chapter 6 verse 1, he says, What should we say? Are we to continue in sin that that grace may abound? He's working under this theme of grace as opposed to keeping the law, and he very naturally begins to answer the question as he comes to chapter 6, that because we're saved of grace, the natural response, the natural question that any of us should ever start to ask if we really understand grace is, well, if it's true that I'm saved freely, without cost, without price, without payment, if I am saved exclusively and entirely based on what Christ has done for me, and if I can do nothing to bring about my salvation or to add to my salvation, if it's entirely based on Jesus Christ, then what you're saying is I can just go on living in sin. This is a natural question that should arise any time that we accurately present the gospel of Christ. Jesus paid it all. And upon hearing that, 
The response needs to be, well, then what difference does it make how I live? That is a natural question, and Paul has been wrestling with that here in chapter 6. He's looking at it first under the rubric of baptism and what we understand and what we're proclaiming when we get baptized, but now he turns to a slightly different understanding of it, and he begins to employ this idea of slaves. You're going to see the word slaves used repeatedly throughout the passage. If you're looking at Romans chapter 6, he first mentions it in verse 16. Don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey? So he mentions it twice in that verse. Again, in verse 17, he mentions it. Again, in verse 18, he mentions it. And again, in verse 19, he mentions it. There are four, five references to slaves in this paragraph here, which is to say that the driving theme of what Paul is wrestling with is this idea of bondage, of servitude. That's what he's getting at. And so as he begins to unpack this, he is saying that if we are Christians, if we follow Jesus, then we are slaves to Christ. That is the calling that is upon us. The spiritual principle is laid out there for us, beginning in verse 16, Uh, He says in verse 16, what then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? He says, by no means. It's never going to be that way. Don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Here is the principle of the whole passage. Whomever we obey... We are binding ourselves to that person as their slave. This is the metaphor that Paul is driving with. And what's interesting is whomever we bind ourselves to, that binding leads to more of the same. If you jump down to verse 19, in verse 19, Paul says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to lawlessness. He goes on to say, leading to more lawlessness. So if we present ourselves to sin, sin will beget more sin. If we present ourselves to obey the world's passions and the world's temptations and the world's lusts, that will breed more of the same. Whomever you present yourself to, there unfolds in the heart of that individual a spiritual process that just leads further and further into whichever path you're walking down. You never just take one step and no further. You never just go one mile and no more. Paul is saying here, whichever slave, whichever master you present yourself to, you're going to do more and more of that. C.S. Lewis, once commenting on this in in his book, The Great Divorce, made this astute observation. Every time you make a choice, he says, you are turning that central part of you, the soul or the spirit, whatever you may call it, you are turning that part of you that chooses, that makes decisions, into something a little different than what it was before. Taking your life as a whole, C.S. Lewis says, with all your thousands upon thousands of choices and decisions that you're going to make over the course of your whole life, he says you are slowly turning this central thing inside of you, soul or spirit, whatever you want to call it, into something, quote, either more heavenly or more hellish. You are either turning yourself into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, 
or you are turning yourself into a creature that is, in, that is at a state of war and hatred with God, its fellow creatures, and yes, even itself. Every choice you make, when you first come to it, it is a unique and new choice. But God has formed us in such a way that every choice we make, upon making that choice, we are forever altered by the choice we have made. And as Paul has already talked about in chapter 5, we're all born sinners. We're all, we all enter into this world with a sin nature. And our entire conduct of life has been only to harden ourselves in that sin. And so we find ourselves here in a pretty serious situation. But for the Christian who has been saved by grace, who have trusted in Jesus, We've been set free, Paul says. You've been bought back from the slave master of sin. But you must serve a master of some form. He makes the statement in, verse, uh, in verses 18 and 19. He says, in, in verse 18, he says, Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Now notice that. He says, you've already been set free And once you've been set free, the outcome of that salvation now is that you are a slave of righteousness. A slave of righteousness. What this means is that you now are bound to obey that which is virtuous, that which is ethical, that which is moral. You can put any word on it that you want, but the overarching thrust of what Paul is saying here is that having been saved from your sins by Jesus, you're now bound to obey what Christ calls you to obey. You are a slave to righteousness. Notice that he's not saying that slaves are required to obey their master. He is touching on an idea of ownership. He's looking at it the other way around. The master we obey shows to whom we belong. Unbelievers are slaves to sin, and he goes on to say this inevitably leads to death. So he's driving at this idea that you are bound to death, you belong to death, and you show that by your continuing sin. But on the contrary, believers, as they obey righteousness, as they step out in faith and obedience, they show that they belong to God. Obedience is an essential ingredient in slavery. It was the function of the slave to do what he was told. And of course, a change in ownership meant that no slave, that meant that the slave no longer obeyed his former master, but now he obeyed his new master. Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and scholars estimate wildly in their in their numbers and their assumptions. Some scholars say that within the empire of Rome, as many as 25% of all the population of Rome was a slave. Other scholars put that number much, much higher, at closer to 40 or 45%. So just rounding roughly here, you could say that one out of every four people you meet on the streets is owned by someone else if you're walking the streets of Rome. That's on the low side. On the high side, you might say that roughly two out of every people or one out of every two people you meet on the street Two, two out of four, one out of two. I don't do math very well. I'm 50%, okay? You get what I'm sitting at. On the low side, one out of four. On the high side, one out of two of every people you meet is a slave. Now, the idea is that slaves would be bought and sold like property 
that if you owned a slave and you came up against a hard economic financial situation and you need to liquidate some of your assets, you could take this human being whom you owned and you could cash out. You could sell him to another owner. And the idea was real simple. You as a slave have been traded to a different owner. You no longer obey the first owner you obey your new owner. What an unbelievable situation it would be for a slave recognizing that he had been bought and sold to a new owner to still try to go back and obey his old master. This is a metaphor Paul is using as he's writing to the church at Rome because Rome, of all the different cities and all the different provinces in the empire, Rome as the capital seat of all governance of the Roman Empire, they would get this image. Now, you and I might be troubled today under this idea of slavery. We hear that term, and of course, we all are familiar with the horrors of slavery and the history that lies behind it with our own countries. And of course, we hear that expression that Paul is using in which he's saying, you're a slave to righteousness now. You can't go back and be a slave to your old master. You don't go back and obey sin. You need to obey Jesus. We hear that, and we hear the slavery language, and naturally, this should trouble us to some extent. And Paul even seems to touch on that. He says in verse 19, he says he's speaking in human terms. He recognizes that the metaphor that he is using to explain this concept will be offensive but he is using the metaphor nonetheless, speaking in human terms, in order to make it crystal clear to you and me that we are the property, not of ourselves, but the property of Jesus Christ. You do not belong to yourself if you've trusted in Jesus. You are no longer free to choose however you choose to do whatever you want to do. Your every thought, your every choice, your every decision should be made from the perspective of, is this what Jesus wants me to do? You know, we often say that we're into relationship, not into religion. But I wonder how many of us really understand what that word religion means. It comes from the Latin regulare, and if you were to parse it in its Latin, it means to bind again, to bind again. Its close cousin in the Latin dictionary is the same term for selling a slave. You are bound to this master, but you've been sold now to that master. And when we use the word religion, which comes to us from this Latin word regulare, we're saying essentially the same thing. I am no longer bound to this master. I am bound to a new master. Religion, as it's been understood across the centuries, is not to be a dry, crusty process of just going through the motions. What religion has meant historically is that there are certain things we do which help us spiritually to recognize who our true owner is. There are certain things we do spiritually that are intended to help us to remember that we are to act and live in such a way that we honor Jesus Christ. 
one of my all-time favorite books, written by a man named Donald Whitney, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. He wrote this book in 1991, and he wrote it in order to give instruction in terms of how we can grow in our faith and how we can grow in our walk with Christ. He uses this term, means of grace. For some of you, this might be a new term. For others of you, you've probably heard this before. It's this idea that because we now live under the grace of Christ, as Paul has been talking about here in Romans 6, we need to follow Jesus Christ and to live as though he is our master. But our natural old man, our sinful man, always is wanting to go back to old habits and old patterns of behavior and old ways of thinking and feeling about certain things. And so we need to first bind our heart and our mind to the truth of Scripture, but then there's all sorts of things that flow out of that, such as prayer and worship and evangelism. And so he begins to spell out all these different spiritual disciplines that we're to employ in the Christian life in order to more firmly bind ourselves to Christ. He talks about reading your Bible. He talks about fasting. And immediately all the Baptists in the room are like, what's that? We potluck. We don't fast. He talks about fasting. He talks about reading your Bible. He talks about praying. He talks about evangelism. He talks about worship. He talks about uh, a number of different spiritual disciplines in the Christian life, such as memorizing Scripture and, and meditating upon Scripture. He wrote this book in 1991, and there was a huge hunger for it. It became overnight a bestseller. And yet, just five short years later, in 1996, he had to write a follow-up book to it. People were writing to him and complaining, I am not sure that this is working in my life. And in his dialogue with them, he found that there was something that had been missed horrifically in his first book. People were trying to grow deeper in their faith without being committed to a church. And so his follow-up book, which he felt compelled to write just four years later, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church. In the foreword to the book explaining his rationale, he makes this statement. I penned these pages to contend against the privatization of spirituality. The current interest in spirituality and the spiritual disciplines has been a huge blessing to me, and yet in correspondence with many who have read my first book, it is found that too often this drive to be more spiritual and to grow in one's faith in Christ manifests itself in a privatized Christianity. Spirituality is not considered in the context of the church body. But the personal spiritual disciplines will only produce the fruit that God desires if we will seek to obey him in every aspect of our walk, which includes being a part of the body of Jesus Christ. Well, I think he said it all right there in the first paragraph. I mean, if you read his table of contents, it actually is the exact same table of contents that you find in his first book with one, with one difference. For example, in his first book, it says, Bible intake, reading the word of God. And chapter one, why read scripture together with other church members? His second chapter is worship. 
And of course, in his first book, he talks about worshiping with the church, but he also talks about worshiping at home, uh, in the quiet of your own home. And of course, many people seized on that and they said, we'll, we'll do it at home. We won't do it together with the church. And so chapter two, why worship together with the church? And all of it, all the way through the whole table of contents, he's challenging this idea of a privatized personal spirituality that is really consumeristic. The danger in that is that we all have a tendency to see what we want to see. We all have a tendency to hear only what we want to hear. We all have blind spots that because we're blind to those certain things, we can't see them. How will we see them unless someone helps us? You may be thinking to yourself, Pastor, where is this in Romans chapter 6? It's all the way through. In everything that Paul says, he is saying it in the plural. You may have missed it with your English translations, but it's there all the way throughout. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? That expression there, do you not know? It's in the plural. This is where it's really helpful to you that I'm from Texas because I can translate using my Texas twang. Don't y'all know? Don't y'all know that you are slaves of the one whom you obey? There's a plural there. We are in this together and we need to understand things together and we need to live in obedience to the call of Scripture together which brings us to the imperative. Look at what he says in verse 19. I am speaking in human terms. And he understands that this metaphor of slavery is going to jar them. So there's almost this apologetic term. We cannot really understand our relationship to Jesus in terms of being owned like cattle. We are not slaves. We are sons and daughters. Nevertheless, we need to understand that as sons and daughters, we belong to him, not to the task, cruel taskmaster of sin and death. So, to illustrate this, he uses this metaphor of slavery, and then he says, I'm just speaking in human terms so that you'll understand it. But then he goes on, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which just leads to more lawlessness, so now, at the present time, in this moment, as you hear the word of God, listen to what Paul is saying. So now, y'all, it's in the plural, all of you, so now, at this moment, the imperative verb, the command in the text is this. You must present yourselves to righteousness. In the same way that you presented yourselves to lawlessness, and that just led to more lawlessness, and that ultimately just leads to death, he says, now you all, all of you are commanded to present yourselves to righteousness, which will lead to sanctification. 
You want to grow in holiness. You want to grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. You want to deepen in your faith. You want to expand your trust. You will do so by presenting your members to righteousness. I know of a man who not that long ago was laying in his bed on a Sunday morning. And he was frustrated because of all different manner of things that had happened in the previous week at work. He was frustrated because of different struggles he was having in his family. And he'd been to the men's Bible study recently, and he was frustrated because he didn't find a whole lot of nourishment there either. So he's just frustrated. He said, that's it. I'm done. I've had it. I am through going to that church. I am through being a part of that group of people. And his wife leaned over in bed as they were still there in the quiet and the dark of the morning, and she said, you're going to go to church. He said, no, I'm not. She said, yes, you are. He said, give me one good reason, just one. And she said, because you're the pastor. (laughs) If you're hearing me preach to you this morning, and you're thinking, hmm, uh, pastor's about to start telling me that I got to love people in this room and I got to start spending time and fellowshipping. Oh, man, I, I just know. I just know it's coming, and I hate it already. You understand that I understand how you're feeling, and you've not been anywhere spiritually that I haven't also been. And whatever struggles you're about to have with the Word of God here in just a second, you need to know I have those same struggles too. It does not change the command. However hard it is, however challenging you find it, the command remains. Present your members to righteousness. Present your members to righteousness, he says. You are bound to Christ. You are not your own. And the call remains, you must present yourselves to righteousness. What does that look like? The text doesn't tell us here. I mean, I could go on and give you lots of examples, reading your Bible, prayer, fellowship, um, getting involved in serving in different capacities, you know, trying to evangelize and witness to your neighbor, the guy across the street or down the cul-de-sac. You know, I could go on and on and say a whole bunch of things that you've already heard me say a thousand times before. I mean, if you heard me say it once, I'm sure you've heard me say it a thousand times before. And at the end of the day, you still don't really want to because you don't like it. And yet the command remains, present your members to righteousness. How do we do that, pastor? We've tried it. We've heard you preach it. We've heard the imperatives. We've heard the commands. We've heard all of this a thousand times before. Look at what Paul says. Look at what he gives us here. I want you to look back at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. When he says that standard of teaching, the Greek word there is tupos. That word tupos is uh, used about 16 times throughout the New Testament. 
And it essentially means the, the figure or the mold or the imprint. It can be used to, to mean all of these things. But the idea here is that it's a particular mold. And if you were to be casting a statue, a bronze statue, or if you were to be minting a coin, for example, you would have a mold and you would then heat and melt that material, that metal, whether it was bronze or gold or silver, whatever it might be, you would heat it to its liquid form and pour it into that mold, and it would take that mold. Paul is saying here that there is a particular mold that we've been entrusted to. That's what he's driving at. Now, this passage has, in other translations, been rendered doctrine, becoming obedient to the standard of doctrine. Doctrine in our current day has become equivalent to a statement of um, these sort of abstract principles. But that's not at all what Paul means when he uses this expression. He doesn't mean to say that the gospel is nothing more than a form of propositions and logical arguments, and that we've been entrusted essentially to a textbook about Jesus. That's not what he's driving at when he writes to the church in Rome. Paul is saying that this is a body of teaching, the nature of that teaching, not at all being defined exclusively by the word, but by what the word signifies. He goes on to say that we have in the gospel, Paul is driving home this idea that we have in the gospel a mold that we've been committed to. And who is that mold? It's Jesus. We've been given to Christ. And what Paul is alluding to here, though he doesn't enumerate it, he will later on in the book of Romans, is that in Christ we have not only an individual who has taught us with words, but has demonstrated that teaching in actions. Jesus didn't just come to teach us about God and to say to us what love is and what God is and that God is love. He did teach us those things. He does use words, but Jesus lived and he died, and that death that he died for you and me on the cross is his definition of what it means for us to say that God is love. To understand love and whatever Jesus teaches about love, we need to understand it is perfectly illustrated not only in the things he said, but how he lived. He went to the cross That shows us better than any other action that he performed what love is. He didn't come merely to lay down, for example, a doctrinal statement about the atonement or propitiation or all of this, penal substitutionary, uh, crucifixion, and and all of that sort of stuff. He does teach on those things, and you will find this taught on throughout the scriptures, but when Jesus comes, he himself goes to the cross on our behalf. That's his teaching on sacrifice. He doesn't come and merely lecture us on ethics when he gives the famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. He does teach with words, but he also lived every word that he spoke in perfect righteousness. Jesus teaches by how he lives. And most significantly, he didn't merely say to you and me that there is a future life free from death and free from sin. He taught us that there is a future life by raising from the dead. And he calls you and me into it. We often speak about this blessed hope. We say time and again, 
I cannot wait for that day that I raise from the dead by the power of God to walk in the glory of eternal life. Particularly, you'll hear this amongst people as they get older and older. You've probably heard the expression from some of our seniors, getting old isn't fun. Living as a senior ain't easy. We look forward correctly to that day in which we will be raised bodily from the grave, never to die again. But there's a little bit of a mistake in these expressions. Our greatest hope and the greatest transformation that we have ever seen or will ever see is not in the old body being transformed into the new body, The greatest transformation that has ever taken place is in the old man being set aside and the old man being raised spiritually. Paul has already touched on that when he talks about baptism in the first four verses. If you think you're going to see something, the most amazing thing you've ever seen when you come out of the grave, then you've been blinded to the reality of what has already taken place in your heart. There will be no greater transformation than the transformation that even now Jesus is working in your soul. And again, you're sitting there saying, well, you're telling me to present my members to righteousness. I'm not sure I'm following you all the way here. Paul has said in verse 19, to present your members to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. The command is on you to do that. But notice what he says in verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to Christ, the standard of teaching to which you were committed or entrusted. On the one hand, he says, you got to do this. Being righteous, being obedient, having faith, growing in your sanctification, That's on you. But just before he had said that, he says, thanks be to God who does this in us. There are two people operative in your life as you grow in faith. One is you. But the most important person at work who's working even now, is Jesus Christ. God the Father, by means of the Holy Spirit, is already at work in you. And sanctification, though it isn't Paul's purpose to lay down an exhaustive teaching on this particular doctrine right here in Romans chapter 6, sanctification, we understand, growing in holiness, we understand, is a partnership between you and God. God does his part And God is always faithful to do his part. Are you faithful to do your part? The implication we can draw out of this text then is this. If we have struggled to grow in faith, if we have struggled to grow in grace, it isn't because God is shortchanging us. It's because we are shortchanging God. You want to grow in holiness? 
You want to grow in faith. You want to see your love expanded. You want to have a deeper love for those around you. It's not because God is not at work trying to produce these fruits in your life. The question is, are you letting him? Are you a slave of righteousness? Jesus, the night that he, the night before he was to be crucified, struggled with a lack of desire. Sure, he loved God. Sure, he wanted to do what was right. But facing the prospect of the cross, he prays in Matthew chapter 26, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Is Jesus eager to go to the cross? In one sense, yes. But in the aspect of his suffering and the torment that he's about to endure, no. Here he is on the night that he is to be betrayed. If there's some other plan, and we don't need to go with plan A, if we can go with plan B, let's do plan B. I'm thinking plan B sounds really good right now. But he makes that statement, not what I want, but what you want. He returns to the disciples whom he has asked to pray for him, and he finds them all sleeping. (laughs) They have taken a nap. And he says, couldn't you wait and watch with me and pray one hour? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. To have a desire to do what is right. The battle is not in their hearts. It's against the members of their body. It's against their natural limitations, their weak flesh. There's a desire to pray, but we are sleepy. He returns to pray himself to the Father. In verse verse 42, it says, For a second time he went away and he prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, then your will be done. He goes to his brothers, and he recognizes they're just men. He knows that they want to do right but they struggle. And that leads to his next prayer. Father, your will be done. You struggle, I struggle. The opportunity is there to obey, but we are going to have to come up hard against our own flesh in order to succeed. Don't be discouraged. Don't get down on yourself. Don't think that if you fail, all is lost. Jesus knows your heart. Paul says, thank you, God. Thank you, God. You 
have entrusted us to the pattern of obedience. You have given us to Jesus. Whether we are growing in our sanctification or whether we have stalled out, what Paul hits at as the most important thing in this passage is what I want to leave you with today. Have you embraced Christ as your Savior? You will never desire to grow in holiness. You will never desire to progress in maturity spiritually if you do not first embrace Jesus Christ. Indeed, you cannot grow. We all will take steps forward. We all will take steps backwards. The focus is never to be on how many steps forward we've taken or how many steps backwards we've taken. The focus always is to be this. Give thanks to God. He has entrusted us to Jesus Christ. Have you trusted in Christ this morning? Let's pray. Father, help us to to walk and to work in such a way that we please you. But when we fail, help us above all to praise you in the sincerity of our hearts and to give thanks to you, knowing that our salvation does not depend on our growth and sanctification. It depends on your Son. We are saved not by our faithfulness or our obedience We've been entrusted to Christ. God, this morning we hear that call from the Apostle Paul to present our members to righteousness. And we ask, Lord, that that call would rest heavy on us, that we would understand that there is an opportunity to progress in our faith, to progress in our sanctification, that it is not as a result of any failure on your part, it is a result of weakness on our part. But help us to keep salvation and sanctification separate and in their proper places. Above all, Lord, help us to be people who can give thanks to you for sending your Son, who knows us inside and out and is a faithful minister to our every need. And if there are any here this morning who do not know Jesus, who have not trusted in in him, I pray for them, Lord, that you would open their eyes to see their need for Jesus Christ. Do that, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.